Digital Drift, episode 12, recorded Tuesday, 6th of May, 2014, The Amazing Spider-Man. You're going to stay with your aunt and uncle for a little while. You'll be safe here. Where are you going? Something your mom and I have to do. I want to go with you. Yeah, we have to go. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Mr. Parker. Not much to tell, really. Peter lives with his aunt and uncle. Forgot all about that thing. It was your dad's. What are you doing here? I'm nothing. Do not get me in trouble. Don't touch anything. Welcome to the first of two of the toughest movies we have ever had to review. With The Lord of the Rings, our feelings were well known between the two of us and they had ten years to take full form, accompanied by extensive behind-the-scenes materials and a closed, completed story. We had a million things to say. The challenge was simply to get those things into a sensibly edited running time. With the Raimi films, we have the benefit of seven years to look at what about them still holds up when sharply contrasted with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, among other superhero blockbusters, and which elements are now, or have always been, weak and shaky. With these, we are taking a reboot nobody wanted that told an origin story everybody already knew, confusing casual cinema goers and sending long-time Spidey fans into paroxysms of fury. There were, of course, other viewers out there who actually really appreciated the alternate take on Spider-Man, now freed of Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, along with the safer cartoon world with occasional flashes of horror movie that Raimi operated within. However, despite their occasional softly spoken fans, almost nobody could call these new Amazing Spider films perfect. All five Spider-Man films have problems, but it's easier to overlook those in the other four. And tonight's podcast, focusing on the first Amazing Spider-Man, will be about why that's the case along with the often unexplored strengths of this comic book hero whipping boy of a movie. In fact, if you want something to compare this and its sequel to, look no further than Hancock and our minority experience review of that movie. Now, a warning. We waited until we had seen The Amazing Spider-Man 2 to review this, because it seemed a story so dependent on rewriting what had come before and anticipating what would come after. With this inability to stand on its own merits, you have one of the key reasons the flaws cannot be overlooked. But also, a spoiler warning, we will be talking about the key events in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 within this podcast, and we urge you to go and see it first before you listen. If you care about Spider-Man, you as a listener also need that perspective and hindsight, even if you end up hating the film. Principally, the, the, the huge difference between this and the Raimi ones is it is a big old nod towards realism. So why go realistic? Re-listening to our uh, podcasts on the Raimi Spider-Mans, one of the things that we keep coming back to is that they were very comic booky. The issues that we had, particularly with that style, and the reason why those films haven't really kept their uh, their strength with us, it's very easy to see how a producer would now look back on that 
and want to move away from that. So you've got basically the uh, reverse yardsticks of the, the Raimi films. Ten years is a very long time in film. The fact that they were modelled on sort of a, a 60s style as it was kind of puts you in this world which is ridiculously old-fashioned and doesn't really work for anybody except people who come from that era themselves or very young children. I got three major reasons why they weren't realistic and they're all cinematic. Dark Knight. Now, if you remember, Batman Begins came out in 2005, after Spider-Man 2, before Spider-Man 3, and might actually have contributed to people feeling a bit cheesed off with Spider-Man 3 in general. Batman Begins came out and uh, it was like, it, at, at the Spider-Man house, it was, we can still carry on with this. The first two Spider-Mans were really uh, popular. They, they it's were, just a little overboard. It's still good. It's still <laughs> <laughs> and then the Dark Knight came out. Everyone went, wow! We can't do this anymore. It's and, gone. I know. <laughs> and, yeah, because everyone came away from Spider-Man 3 going, ugh. Everyone. So, obviously, go back to the drawing board. You can't carry on in that universe. Uh, then Iron Man came out, actually slightly before The Dark Knight, and showed how to do a Marvel character that was, at the time, relatively unknown, and do him in such a way that he actually kind of eclipses Spider-Man in terms of uh, Marvel cachet now around the world. And another one, and it's only a little one, but it's kind of significant. You tied this up with the way Austin Powers came out uh, that meant you couldn't really do Bond in the Pierce Brosnan style anymore, necessitating the back to the drawing board of Casino Royale. Kick-Ass. A film that came out in 2010 and was significant enough in that it the whole thing plays out as a parody of the Maguire Spider-Man. Spider-Man generally, I would say, but yeah, the Maguire Spider-Man specifically. But it, it does mean... Even though it's, duration at the beginning. Yeah, although it's... the fact it's that Eric Taylor Johnson is very similar in his naivety of that particular Peter. Yes. I thought you were going to say looks there for a minute. <laughs> no. no. Really isn't. So the next question is, why go back to teenage life? Why not just make Peter a man? Yeah, and again, I think it's something that we, we did touch on with the original three. Peter Parker is the adolescent of the Marvel Universe. Even when he's written as an adult in the comics, there is something very uh, developmental and uh, hoarded potential about his character. Um, and it, it actually takes quite a gifted writer to be able to present him as a man and still maintain all of that. I've seen it done, and it's really, really good. Um, but I think if you're going to create a new Spider-Man universe, you kind of have to go back to the beginning, because if you come in with him as an adult, a lot of what makes him who he is... You either have to skip over it all and just say, well, that's all already been done. This is who he is now, which is a bit unsatisfying. Or you have to siphon it all into an adult's perspective, which doesn't work because it's not entirely what happens to Pete that makes him who he is. It's when it happens to him. It's the circumstances under which he is presented with those situations. It's the fact that he goes through this physical metamorphosis at a time when his body is metamorphosizing, met changing anyway. <laughs> um, and, and his mind is changing and he's having to um, reassess who he is in the face of 
no parents and um <laughs> and school difficulties that that are in the grand scheme of things relatively unimportant and then he has to line them up with these life and death situations that he finds himself getting thrown into and if you put all that with an adult then you basically have Tony Stark and we already have Tony Stark. I believe it would, would have been possible to hit the ground running with a, a grown-up Peter Parker who is maybe on the outs with Mary Jane and have it in an alternate universe where uh, similar things happened in, in the first three, but not entirely. And obviously the, the, the parallel there is the Incredible Hulk, which takes place after similar sort of events of Ang Lee's Hulk. They could have done that. However, Mark Webb, the director, uh, who had done only one major film before this, 500 Days of Summer, and it was a romantic comedy drama, uh, was very interested in getting to Peter as a teenager and going back and focusing on the high school, which if you remember in the original Spider-Man, they've done with it by the end of Act 1. He's out of high school. There's none of that left anymore. He moves out of his uh, aunt and uncle's, well, his, his aunt's house. Uh, uncle Ben dies. He moves to the city with Harry, and that's that. Peter is now fast-tracked to becoming a man. The problem was that all the way up through the Spider-Man films, he, we are told and sold that Peter is a man. You also get this combination 60-year-old man, 10-year-old boy version of Peter, who never really hits that maturity curve and becomes the man, but also never really seems like a teenager. So there's a reason to go back and show this again, to show Peter as a teenager for the first time on film. Because we never really got to see him like that before. We got to see him the way that writers of TV in the 50s, leave it to Beaver, interpret teenagers. There are various other reasons, and some of them are a bit more insidious than others. The uh, key demographic of Spider-Man are kids. And if you make him too old, then allegedly you lose the kids. The vast sales of Iron Man toys suggest otherwise. But anyway, there is a uh, reticence within Marvel, and this goes to the comics and the animated shows as well, away from moving on in Peter's life. Because once he gets married, he has grown-up problems to deal with. They killed Gwen Stacy way back in the 70s because Peter was getting really too close to getting tied down. But the idea being, if Peter's a real proper man, kids aren't going to be interested. Uh, Finally, though, you go back to a time when the world is still a mystery and you're finding out things, especially from the point of view of an orphan who never really knew his parents... There are obvious, straightforward parallels with the Harry Potter series right here. It's funny you should make that comparison, actually, because that hadn't occurred to me until today um, when, in the making of footage, I heard Andrew Garfield speaking in his natural accent. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it went, click, oh, this is very similar to Harry Potter. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but with Ultimate Spider-Man, with the more recent Spider-Man series where uh, um, he, they undid his marriage to Mary Jane and he went back to living with his aunt using um, the narrative contrivance of alternate timelines or something, I think Satan did it. They keep getting Peter, even as an adult, even as a man who appears to be approaching his 40s, back into the dynamic of the, the young man living with his aunt, trying to keep things together, trying to keep a job down with women troubles. I think, actually, if you look at it from a, a big enough distance, um, there's an important facet of the character actually within that 
sort of almost awkward, artificial holding back of his his character development because the thing with Peter and his uh, his obsession with all of the things that he has to be responsible for is he can't let go of things. He can't drop all of the people he hasn't been able to save. He can't drop all of the situations that he hasn't been able to fix and every problem and every situation that has ever presented him with an unconquerable obstacle is hanging off him and he can't move forward until he grows up and lets go of those things and that would fundamentally change who the character is the other influence that uh, is not untoward uh, is the twilight saga it's quite possible the uh, refocus on the relationship side of things uh, was a device to market better to teenage girls, get them into the cinema because they were interested in the shipping aspects of Spider-Man. See, you say that, but having been at one point in my life, quite some years ago now, an adolescent, I seem to recall that around the 14, 15, 16 age... The boys were just obsessed about the idea of pairing up and partnering off as the girls were. The idea that, that something would show you uh, somebody at that age with absolutely zero interest in any form of, of relationships, romantic or otherwise, and entirely focused on the acrobatic benefits of being able to fly through the air and, you know, collar diamond thieves, it... it seems to me that if you tried to do that you're telling not even half a story like one fifth of a story spider-man and, and peter parker's convoluted life has been about shipping since day one yeah twilight did not invent the teen romance drama no of course it didn't however in terms of getting marketers on board they could easily have pointed to look what we have here and suddenly you have a box ticked on the sheet that says teenage girls that's true annoying but true Okay, the first thing that strikes you about this is that it's not Danny Elfman doing the score at long freaking last. Um, so we don't get that Danny Elfman theme. And it's James Horner's version. And this didn't immediately strike me. And in fact, the um, diddle 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 kind of reminded me a bit of uh, the Danny Elfman side of things, only with the choral aspects of, say, Titanic and the horns of Avatar and the fact that James Horner uses horns like crazy and always has. And I've heard somebody say that this is the worst superhero score they've ever heard in the history of ever.
started to really grow on me now. Uh, I love the, uh, the the main theme and uh, the, the way it's slowly growing throughout the uh, film. And then when it rises up, we don't get it at the beginning. In, in the Raimi Spider-Mans, you get the Spider-Man theme from the very beginning saying, look, we're going to get Spider-Man. This is what you paid for. You're going to get Spider-Man. And that's brilliant. That's a great way to introduce you. In this, it is a slowly assembling score. So when it finally kicks in, it's when he's doing the crane swings. The other thing I love about the James Horner score is that there's lots of lovely, quiet, thoughtful, piano-style plinky-plunking when the reflective moments are going on. And it's not the sort of thing you hum, but it's it's for mood-building, but it's there enough to really give you a delicate, thought-provoking score. So, sorry, it was Christopher Young did the music for Spider-Man 3. I hope it's still the, uh, the uh, album theme. Uh, there needs to be a sense of joy and exhilaration within uh, any presentation of Spider-Man. The trick is about where you put it, because if it's if you're trying to put it throughout, then you end up with this uncomfortable cognitive dissonance that I had such issues with with the Raimi Spider-Mans, that there are times when that's not how life is, and yet that's being pushed, because that's supposed to be the tone of this story. Um, and I like the fact that with um, uh, Amazing Spider-Man, there is very much an up and down. There are days when he feels that he completely embraces this this opportunity that he's got, and there are times when he feels utterly weighed down by it. Um and that is appropriate for, again, his age, his state of mind, um, the suddenness with which this has all come upon him. And I think it is put across in the music. A good way to put it would be that the Elfman score is very much larger than life, uh, but this is about the same size as life. Let's start with something significant. Uh, why is the connection to Richard Parker, Peter's father, so emphasised? That's done so that the the whole that Richard leaves behind when he goes is the more apparent. One of the big things that I really appreciated about this version of Peter um, is this idea of him being not a victim, not bullied, not, you know, beaten down the way Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man is, um, but somebody who is nevertheless on the periphery of his school life. He's an outsider. He doesn't really connect with anybody. Um, he has this perpetual sense of there being something missing within himself. Um, and effectively what that is, is his relationship with his father. Ben has tried his best, um, but he can't fill that void. It's, it's not the same thing. By having... Richard there in the introductory scenes and in the um, the little prologue first of all you're looking at such a young child that you can't help but understand that the removal of his parents at this juncture in his life is going to be hugely significant um, I mean I think uh, Peter is six when that happens something like that yes yeah um, and six is you know sort of five six years old is an age where you're you're coming to the end of the first stage of your childhood where you're being um, formulated into what other people will make you. you you're on the cusp of be- of becoming somebody who is conscious and aware of who they are and how they fit in and is actually starting to have some control over that. So as much of a turning, pivotal turning point as the one that Uncle Ben in the first Spider-Man points out that Peter is entering into for his next phase. And when Absolutely. he becomes the man he will 
turn into. That's right, yeah. I mean, first of all, they have the, the whole setup with um, Peter playing hide-and-seek with his dad um, and it, it happening at this sort of this key point where his father realises that somebody's found um, or is, is coming after them. Um, there are these wonderful little touches throughout this prologue. The, the visual storytelling in this is, is fantastic. You've got the, uh, the panning around the house and you've got... Um, Peter's pictures all over the place. There's photos of them together. Um, it, it's made very, very clear that this is a household where he is loved and wanted and um, that he is, if not the centre of, then certainly very much a part of. It's not like, you know, this is his dad's study where he is not allowed to be. And, um, you know, there's, there's no sense of him feeling uh, isolated from his parents or anything like that. Um, and the the moment where he puts his father's glasses on, um, which is something that you know, when you're a kid, you you put things on of your parents uh, for well multiple reasons, but one of them is so that you can feel close to them, um, and then they uh, they echo that with Peter putting his father's glasses on. Um, as an as an adolescent, as a teenager, in order to try and replicate that connection, um, so you you set it set this relationship up as one which is really key to who he is as a person, really really important to him, and then it gets ripped away from him without so much as a buy you leave. All he gets from Richard as he walks out of the door is be good. That's what he leaves him with. Be good. That is not enough, and. That is the root of why Peter has this void within him that he is trying so desperately to fill. Although Peter must ask himself repeatedly throughout his life, am I good? Even if he's not asking himself uh, straight out like that at the very end, what does Aunt May say to him? You are good. Yeah. It's no accident that Steve Clovis uh, was on scripting duties. He didn't write it from scratch, uh, but he was brought in, which would account for why it feels rather like Harry Potter. Effectively, a lot of Peter's journey is simply getting into his father's shoes and trying to follow in those footsteps. That's what leads him on this paper trail back through his father's work. That's what leads him to becoming Spider-Man. Peter's relationship with Flash is rather more complex in this one. It's not, it's not on screen for very long. There's a few back and forths. When Peter comes in with Eugene, you can infer from that he's known Flash for a long time. Flash was a little kid named Eugene, and Peter knew him back then. When Flash reacts to that one, it's from a point of view of being angry that Peter knows more about him than he likes to broadcast. And then when, uh, in comparison to the thug in the in the uh, Raimi one, uh, this is light, light years ahead significantly when uh, Peter and Flash clash after the death of Uncle Ben, and Flash says... Hey, Parker... Not today, Flash. Hey, come on, man. I just want to talk. <laughs> Feels better, right? Look, your uncle died. I'm sorry. I get it. I'm sorry. Okay. Feels better, doesn't it? The idea of lashing out because you're so helpless about about a situation you're going through he's actually reaching out to parker in a way that we've never seen before on the big screen 
Yeah, and and I loved that, and I I loved the fact that again, this is what I mean when I say that the <clears throat> the kids here seem both more aware and more oblivious. It's almost like they know more instinctively about how to deal with other people. Um, and certainly Peter comes across as, as that. There, there are times in this where he seems to instinctively know exactly how to handle a situation, but he doesn't know how he knows, and therefore he can't rely on it. There are uh, brief glimpses of him knowing exactly how to handle Ben, for example, and get the response he wants out of him. But you can tell he's not doing it on purpose, and that it's something that comes and goes. He doesn't always know how to do that. Sometimes he just stands and stares at him and hasn't got the first clue how to interpret what's coming from that direction. In the comics, Peter and Flash eventually become friends and this relationship has lasted for decades. Thompson loses his lower legs in the Iraq war trying to save other soldiers because that's what his hero, Spider-Man, would do. Another thing I've just thought about uh, regarding Flash, the way Peter humiliates him on the basketball court is a model for how Peter is eventually going to react to his enemies, as in Spider-Man. The taunting. The taunting and the running rings around him and eventually destroying him in front of everybody else. But you also have the wonderful follow-up to that scene where, um, without having to really say anything, Peter is incredibly ashamed of the fact that he's done this because yeah. it, it comes down to this idea of if you have the power to crush somebody absolutely, you should never need to do it because if you know you can do it, you've already won. That is not a battle that is worth your time. It's in a, in a way it's beneath you. If you use power that you know you have, then that you're being unfair um, and you you are the bully in that scenario if you do that it's why you have to have a license if you are uh, you know, schooled in karate or some other martial art that you have, are effectively a weapon yeah and again a lot of the uh, the theory behind learning martial arts is not using them that you know you only use them in a situation where you need to defend yourself because the person who is attacking you is stronger than you are but again, that is all such an intrinsic part of being a, an adolescent, of going from being a powerless child to a powerful adult and being able to gauge what about you is strong and what about you is powerful. Because you're not going to know unless you try, but if you try and you crush somebody utterly, that's guilt that you then have to live with. Which leads us on to uh, Uncle Ben's speech and Martin Sheen's performance as Uncle Ben. It's very different from Cliff Robertson. I do really relish seeing Robertson play the 60s-style Uncle Ben and just being this genial old Tom Bosley type. But it's very different from the way Sheen handles it. There's a lot of brittle anxiety in this version of Ben. He's constantly aware that he's not Peter's father. He's unsure of how to handle each situation, which obviously they develop and they uh, are being exacerbated as Peter grows up and becomes more frustrated and angry and, in this case, violent. I think as well, and a lot of this does come down to just Martin Sheen's absolute dominance when it comes to acting. There are elements to Ben 
that are never spoken of, that you never really see, and yet he manages to get them across anyway. And the fact that you have uh, Richard as this constant missing presence, to paraphrase from Harry Potter, in fact, Peter didn't just lose a father, Ben lost a brother. He points out that Peter looks just like his dad. Now, that's got to be a sting for Ben, who who has lost his little brother. There's the fact that Peter is has outstripped him in intelligence already. Again, growing up as there was, there's obviously quite a significant age gap between Ben and Richard. Um, and growing up with a, a younger sibling who so completely beats you hands down in something is is a difficult thing to to come to terms with and to handle. And Ben has obviously dealt with that extremely well. He's a very gentle man. He never gives any indication that he feels he has anything to prove. The, the times when his anger comes through, it's usually because um, he's feeling that somebody he cares about is being threatened. I mean, the major and obvious one is when um, May has had to walk home alone because Peter wasn't there to go and pick her up. Um, and there's something very uh, realistic about the dynamic between them all in this particular argument and something that, that I, I really quite appreciated about how they put that across. Ben is protective of May, that scene played out by Cliff Robertson, it would have come across very much as this is a very old-fashioned man who who has very strong beliefs about women being protected and being looked after, but in a very general sense. What I got from Martin Sheen and Sally Field in that moment is this is two, these are two people who love each other very, very much, and it scares them when the other one is potentially in danger. That is a very personal relationship. It's not about the principle at that point. He was scared for May. And again, it's done very subtly. It doesn't have to be said outright, but it comes across anyway. Uh, another key complaint was that uh, he never actually says the words, with great power comes great responsibility. I would like you to try to imagine that exact scenario. Martin Sheen repeating those words and the groan from the audience that that would bring about. The fleeting amount of, oh, he said it, he said it, would be slowly replaced with, but what's the point of all this? They're trying to do it in a realistic way, and they thus have to try to get the characters to say things that a person would say, not that Tigra would say. Rules are only meaningful if people agree to follow them. Otherwise, they're just words. Be a man. Get in there and apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, I may have. Honestly, you don't have to apologize to me. It's Hell, your... he doesn't. Ben. Look, I'm sorry, Uncle Ben. I, uh, I got distracted. This oh, you got odd. distracted. Yeah. Your aunt, my wife, had to walk 12 blocks alone in the middle of the night and then wait in a deserted subway station because you got distracted. Ben, sweetheart, honestly, I am completely capable of walking home. You will walking... not... Defend this I'm boy. not defending You are defending him. I Listen don't... to me, son. Yeah, go ahead. You're a lot like your father. You really are, Peter, and that's a good thing. But your father lived by a philosophy, a principle, really. 
He believed that that if you could do good things for other people, you had a moral obligation to do those things. That's what's at stake here. Not choice, responsibility. That's nice. That's that's great. It's all well and good. So where is he? What? Where is he? Where's my dad? He didn't think it was his responsibility to be here to tell me this himself. Oh, come on. How dare you? How dare I? How dare you? Where are you going? Peter, come back here, please. The importance is he does say it. He just doesn't say it in those words. He does it in a way that the core tenets are put across, and also in a way that actually requires you to think about them in less of a generalized sense than, well, great responsibility, that means I must have responsibility for everyone. In other words, we've heard this phrase so many times, the words have actually lost all meaning, so it deserves to be revisited in a manner that makes us actually ponder the meaning behind the words. Moving on from Martin Sheen, how does Sally Field's performances Aunt May differ from Rosemary Harris? She starts off quite similar, I think. She she does have um, a little bit of that same tendency to just, yeah, well, kick this under the rug where we don't have to pay any attention to it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is, that is something which changes as the movie progresses. Hmm. She starts off nannying him, but eventually the stress gets to her and she breaks and... and throws herself on the mercy of the court because ultimately they only really have each other in this one and uh, she is having serious difficulty coping to a degree that's where she and, and Harris really differ Aunt May is always don't worry about it don't worry about me I'll be fine I'll be fine May especially after the uh, the midpoint she actually reminds me a little bit of Cole's mother in the sixth sense mm. yeah yeah very what's much going so on Cole please tell me Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a brilliant moment actually where um, uh, Peter comes home and she's fallen asleep on the sofa and he pulls the blanket over her, and it's it's something that's been used. In fact, you noted it the other day with something that we were watching. It's used frequently to show someone. It's cinematic this, shorthand for that someone might be a dick, but they do have they do care about some people other than themselves. That's right, and and the. The image of somebody falling asleep on the sofa. Because oh, and we were watching Hackers. Oh, that's it. <laughs> um, the Which in many ways is like the prototype Amazing Spider-Man. Sorry, got spit on my mic. You got to do a righteous hack on one of those Gibsons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you you know somebody falls asleep on the sofa. It's very obvious that that person is not sleeping properly. And, and is therefore exhausted. She says later on she can't sleep and she's very emphatic about that. That's that moment where she, she suddenly becomes extremely shrill, but it's in such contrast with how kind and sweet and understanding and patient she's been up to this point that that's when you realize how far she's been pushed. And it hit me when I saw her, I saw her sleeping on the sofa and then she says she can't sleep. She doesn't want to go and sleep in that bed without Ben. Again. And if Peter's out late, she can't go to bed and hope that he comes home. Exactly. Unless she knows he's safe because otherwise she could lose him too. 
And because imagine living in the real New York and imagine the amount of crime there. This is not jewelry thieves. This is murderers and rapists. Indeed, and and also you've you've when you've seen it when it has happened to your husband, of yeah. course you're going to be filled with fear that it's going to happen to your nephew too. Um, and, and you're also not going to want to go to sleep because of the constant nightmares which you will be powerless to defend against. Yeah, but it's all done visually. It's all done under the surface. She never says any of this. She never has to. I, I, hands up, I have never had much respect for Sally Field as an actress before this. But the full weight of her experience and her ability came through in this very small role for me. Um, and it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Backed up by the small amount of screen time that she gets in Amazing Spider-Man 2 where she has at least one really wonderful speech. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Four, I mean, when five, you're older, six, you don't sleep that seven, much. How many? What you get, Tell me how many hours you got. I didn't count the, would you grade the cheese, please? Leave, leave the cheese out of this. What I'm saying is, if... Peter, what's going on? What do you mean? I don't know. Over the last few days, you just seem like you've lost something. I mean, you're pleasant, and you're punctual, and you're responsible. Maybe a bit too responsible. You just seem like you've lost something. And on that note, uh, in the in the same way, I, I I was never massively enamoured of her before, but now that I've read more of Ultimate Spider-Man, I can see it's absolutely clear that they have taken Brown Michael Bendis's uh, slightly younger, slightly more in touch, more just a slightly aged mum version of Aunt May rather than a little old woman who she's been in the 60s which was clearly the Rosemary Harris version and that that's been the chief inspiration but in the same way that May is deepened uh, with her characterization in Amazing Spider-Man 2 albeit brief Gwen Stacy was always the best thing about this uh, for me and now that I've seen and finished Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a luminous treasure after having seen Amazing 2 on Sunday, we came home and watched Amazing 1 again, and every single uh, moment feels like a gift. I think to, to start with the most superficial level of why Emma Stone as Gwen is such a key element of these films is that, um, I mean, what I, I said to you earlier today, Part of what makes these films work is the reality of the relationships that is going on and the connection, uh, the chemistry between Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield is it fucking crackles. I mean, that's something that you cannot possibly manufacture. That is down to casting a click between two people is incredibly difficult to synthesize. It seems to me to be very obvious in this. And it's actually knowing that the two of them did, in fact, hook up, get together, however you want to phrase it. Um, watching them in the... the um, Casting sessions. Making of sessions. It's like... The making out sessions? I didn't see these. Yeah. <laughs> 
making of, I said. But it, it's, it, you're watching two people meet and flirt and, and, you know, connect with each other and it's really hot. Um, I mean, focus. It's active. Be professional. I am. <laughs> I am. But yes. Yes, extremely effective. There you go. It's also hot. Hi. How did you get out there? Fire escape. Your doorman's intimidating. It's 20 stories. Yeah. Sorry. This is your room. Yes, this is my room. Books. Shoes. (laughs) Oh, hey, uh... Got your mom. Uh, please... Oh, love, lovely. Yeah, they're beautiful, right? They're beautiful. They were, they were nice. No, they're beautiful. I'm sorry. No, it's impressive. They actually held together very well. I'm gonna keep these. <laughs> you have your suit in there? My suit? Pin it down. It's not just that there's chemistry. It's not just that uh, Emma Stone is a vibrant actress. Uh, what is it about the Gwen Stacy character that makes her so pivotal to the Spider-Man story? See, that's going to be really hard for me to, to go into detail on without touching extensively on two, which I, I really want to, to keep for that podcast. But I would say in this... Well, let's just focus on, on how she develops in this. Yeah. For looking at, at how she's presented here, she is... Um, you You meet her and obviously the first thing you see is that she is incredibly attractive. Um, however... The way that comes across, she's not, you know, in the midst of some popular girl conversation, flipping her blonde hair over her shoulder, you know, giggling vacuously. Pushing up her bra like that. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> you know, she's, she's on, I think, if I'm right, she's, she's on her own. Book, she's reading. Yeah. So. And Peter's creeping. Um, <laughs> um, she's also, uh, her intelligence is never in question. There is not a second in this film where Gwen plays dumb or is written dumb in order or to make... a dumb question in order for some information to be given to her. Exactly. Um, it, or in order to make Peter seem better. Yeah. There, there is not... In fact, quite the opposite. Oftentimes, she's the one doling out the information. Mm, but in kind of a... Not so much sarcastic way... But you can see, you can see when she's invested in something, mm. and Stone gets that across. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, her job. She does not want to lose that job. She doesn't want to be seen as unprofessional, be seen as a, a, a silly little girl, and be seen as trouble. But at the same time, she's not bitchy about that. She manages to make it look, this is important, please be respectful of it. Ultimately, if I were to sit down and write a list of all the qualities that I have ever wanted all the things that i have ever wanted to develop about myself i would basically be describing this gwen stacy she is and capable, specifically this she's gwen confident. Stacy as well because it's the, the gwen, gwen from the 70s in the comics wouldn't have been as uh, developed or as sharp as this the gwen from uh, uh ultimate spider-man would have been more sharp but possibly more aggressive than this gwen in spectacular is actually less aggressive than this but a lot less confident more shy less confident a bit more geeky um but she does have uh, a flashing look that she gives people when they upset her you know not to mess with her to that end and the gwen in spider-man 3 
is a very nice girl. Full stop. <laughs> That's the extent the of characterization. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a, um, in the help. It's basically a Gwenoff. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this one before, but you got uh, Dallas Bryce Howard and Emma Stone, and they are actually opposed within the film. I'd also recommend seeing The Help. It's wonderful. I think, as well, something that is important about Gwen is that it's not all about how she interacts with Peter. She also has significant relationships with other people, which, for a supposedly romantic interest heroine is pretty rare you know she has a relationship with her family her father is very significant in her life but she also seems to have a, a, a pretty good relationship with her mum you don't that's really implied we re- that we should have seen more of her and her mother especially that, for two that would have been nice you know she's got some brothers you get little flashes of that you don't see her interact with her brothers much um but it's there but also her relationship with dr connor's Again, it's quite subtle. It's done mostly uh, in a visual way. But she she almost seems to kind of idolise him a little bit. And gratifyingly at the end, she does not get kidnapped by a bad guy. The confluence of events does not go, I'm going to get to Spider-Man, I'll thus kidnap you and wait for Spider-Man to come to me. When Spider-Man comes to me, I'll, I'll pretty much just ignore you and try and fight Spider-Man. That's basically all Mary Jane was in the first three. Bait. Yeah. Gwen puts herself in harm's way. And she does it for a reason, not just because she's stupid and she stumbles into it. There's, I think she, she screams once in this film. It's uh, when, I mean, it's when the entire audience would be forgiven for going, ah, when yeah. the lizard bursts in on her. That's right. She's hidden in the, uh, in the closet with the, um, is it the Ganali machine she's got at that yeah. point? Cause he's, but she he's even like improvises a MacGyver style weapon as well. Yeah. To defend herself. Absolutely. She but just cower. Very specifically at that point, he doesn't grab her unnecessarily, which was one of our big issues with Dr. Octopus. Yeah. Much as I, I love uh, the, the portrayal of Dr. Octopus when he's a man, uh, Otto Octavius, when he's uh, in full octopus mode, he needlessly continues kidnapping Mary Jane. Even when he's obtained what it is he needs. Yeah. Um, and she Principally really is so a liability. tied to something and scream so yeah. that Spider-Man can come and save her. Absolutely. Th- that is not to say, by the way, that they don't fast track this to the usual showdown with the big bad villain at the end they bloody do and the principle is still the same Gwen's in there I've got to stop her from being hurt it's just the specifics of it are reordered so that she's not quite so pathetic as uh, Mary Jane is portrayed the first half of the film is a retelling of the origin side of the original 2002 Spider-Man so all of that gets retold in a slightly different way, which obviously had people shifting in their seats because they're like, we've seen this. When's he going to get to the burglar and throw him out the window? In the end, he doesn't get to the burglar. He doesn't throw him out the window. He doesn't get that closure. In the end, he gets more than that, which is to get focus for who he's going to be. There's a bridge scene, rather appropriate, since it is in between one half of the film and the other, uh, and we'll come back to the bridge scene in a bit and talk about its significance. And then after that, basically once Connors is the lizard again, it's 
a retelling of sorts of the Doctor Octopus stuff from Spider-Man 2. But it makes no sense because Connor's motivations in the first half do not match up with Connor's motivations in the second half. It's almost as though they set out to make this uh, relatively low-budget romantic drama with some Spider-Man elements to it. And then halfway through production, there was a sudden large cash injection and they had to crowbar in an identical, colourful villain plot lifted from the Raimi universe. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that moment where Peter's on the roof with Gwen and then he sees something happening in the distance that turns out later to be the lizard on the bridge, that he was looking at something else entirely in the original version of this film, which is exactly what happened in the Daredevil director's cut. Now, I could be wrong about this. The whole big showdown with the lizard at the end could have been in there from the very, very beginning. But if the whole point of this was so that Sony would get to make a Spider-Man film, and that's all that really had to happen... The low-budget drama side of things, which would be why they hired Mark Webb in the first place, does seem like a way to go. It would also explain why the mystery plot starts itself up but doesn't actually go anywhere. And there are several moments, especially in the deleted scenes, that seem like they might be about to become an information dump that got excised in the end. Because they all inhabited the latter end of the first version of this film. This could, of course, be all just a great big crazy loony crackpot theory of mine, but it would go some ways to explain the editing mess that the second half of this film becomes. I have a curious feeling while I'm watching this film because the actual events themselves bore the pants off me. I've seen it done. And how the events are done is also not especially fascinating for me. There's no bits where I'm just sort of on the edge of my seat going, oh my god, that came in too. But it's who the events are happening to and it's who Peter is when he takes off the mask and who Gwen is and who Aunt May is that make all of this MacGuffin stuff all this running around and spraying webs all over everything while it is a lot of sound and fury it doesn't signify nothing if that makes any sense because I care about for the first time who this is happening to that makes this Amazing Spider-Man, my second favourite Spider-Man film. I think where this falls down for me, and when we talk about Amazing Spider-Man 2, it fell down on almost exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. The part where Spider-Man works for me is the human stories. His superhero job, if you like, is just that. It is his, obviously it's not a nine to five, but it's his um, chosen path, but it is not who he is. It's what he he puts in the costume, he goes out to be Spider-Man, but it's all of the stuff that he has to deal with in addition to that that makes it interesting. Spider-Man's villains are human. And when you start to lose that the point of connection is no longer there. Spider-Man does not have um, a, a set of villains who are uh, space gods or um, galaxy-consuming beings of pure cosmic energy or anything like that. He deals with um, bad guys who are on a much more relatable level. To be specific, a great proportion of Spider-Man's rogues gallery is made up of men 
who have become involved in some sort of wacky scientific experiment that usually gives them some sort of property belonging to an animal. Even Electro, Electric Eel. And the reason they're villains and antagonists is because they tend to use that new sudden ability to bully people. That's why they're Spider-Man's villains. In the case of the lizard, taking away everybody's choice whether or not to be a giant lizard is bullying. And that's also why kids love Spider-Man and the inner child inside every single one of us has a great respect for Spider-Man because he stands up to and punches down the bullies who would otherwise hurt people. Even though he himself gets hurt and suffers in the process, he keeps going. That's why we love him. Unfortunately, the way that they've had a tendency to be portrayed and they still obviously haven't been able to, to figure out how to get away from this... There's an uncanny valley effect. You know these guys are human. They start off human. You're relating to them as human beings. Their motivations are driven by human events and human relationships. And then all of a sudden... As the effects kick in. As the effects kick in, the human element is lost. And they're drained away. And they become a great big cartoon for Spider-Man to thrash about in Absolutely. dazzling action sequences. And what's the most frustrating thing, particularly about this one, actually, is that, I mean, they got Reese Iffens, who is so far from being who you would expect to be cast in a superhero movie. And they got a performance out of him that was beautiful in the first half he sells kirk connor's so amazingly well intelligent um, tragic intense absolutely and uh secretive yeah and uh, yes all right they may have filtered off some of the elements of of dr connor's that i particularly liked but the core of the character is still there and his motivations are real the core of who he is is totally consistent and totally true and it would have been so easy to use the effects to change his appearance and rough up his voice a little bit but still have him be the same person With and the his same motivations. motivations still be the same and in fact, what you actually get is a big green monster goes raw and runs around trashing things. Dissonance again, though, because he mixes acids and bases and turns them into an improvised explosive and throws it at Spider-Man, and just to show how much savvy and now he still has. But then his motivation there is, I will kill Peter Parker, raw. how dare you try to stop me? Why does the lizard hate Peter so much? It doesn't make any sense. There are two major characters cut out of this, uh, Martha and Billy Connors. Uh, in all the good lizard stories in the comics, you get these two. These are the link to uh, the humanity of Kurt, uh, especially in uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, Martha is his uh, partner. She's a scientist. She works on the same experiments he does. She's just as smart as he is. And they're both aware that he's continuously frustrated by the loss of this limb and, and it feels like uh, he considers it unfair. He has not learned to deal with life without it. They represent what he can have back if he just lets go of this obs obsession with being whole again and not being weak. You take that away, his life seems really empty. He's respected, he's a genius, he's got a great job, but his house is so quiet now, I'm not saying you need a family to be a, a, a real person. I'm just saying adding it on gives a character so much more dimension 
in terms of giving them something to come back to if they start to become a monster. Because if no one's there to care about you if you turn into a monster, then what's there to lose, really? There are echoes of that. Um, if you look around the house, there are photographs of um, his wife and son. And there is a deleted scene where he goes to speak to his son um, at, at his school. And the, it's not said outright, but the way it's framed, it suggests that they are estranged, or at least that, that he does, they don't live with him anymore. Yeah. But uh, he continuously refers to a world without weakness, which is... You don't even really need to read it repeatedly to work out the essential flaw at its core. A world without weakness where every flaw is treated until it is perfected means that you're constantly trying to search for this perfection and that everything that falls short of this perfection is seen as a flaw or weakness. And it scales upwards to the point where what we would now consider to be perfection is still weak in the eyes of those who live with absolute perfection. Weakness is relative, uh, as was explored in a movie named Gattaca, which no one remembers, starring Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. It's about a future where we're able to deal with diseases on a genetic level, and they have to keep redefining what constitutes weakness. Also, Kurt, at the beginning, when he's talking about the Ganali device, points out that what if you want to opt out of uh, uh, being inoculated for a, a vaccine, and you know, thus there this uh, machine sits gathering dust... He then, as a lizard, decides, I'm now going to turn everyone in New York into a giant lizard. We're never given a solid reason why this is the, a decision that he reaches. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And again, if he had, uh, in a much more calm and intellectually cold way, had a speech while in his lizard form about how this formula has... Freed um, him. Just yeah, that um, he kind of fixated on the idea that this formula has allowed him to regrow what was missing, um, ignoring the fact that what's actually missing is his wife and son, and it can't regrow them. But that if he distributes this... Like Peter, uh, he is trying to fill a void. Exactly. But that if he distributes this toxin to everybody, then it will help them to grow back the parts of them that are missing. Because, again, it's it's this idea that somebody who is... Um, I mean, he's he's not... You can't really call him a bad guy. He's not evil in any true sense of the word. But he's he a is, threat and an antagonist. He is fixated on this idea that everybody, that, that, you know, he can only see people through the filter of himself. He feels that he has something missing. Therefore, he is convinced that everybody feels that they have something missing. And he wants to help them to restore that missing part. Um, he can't see the world through anybody's eyes except his own. And he does kind of acknowledge that he does that. And he, he says about how when um, uh, Richard disappeared, he was very angry and that was why he, he kind of didn't have anything more to do with the family and didn't have anything to do with Peter. And he does apologize for that. So it's it's obviously there, you know, his humanity is there within him. But what he's doing is taking steps to push that humanity further away. The idea of the, I, I can't even remember where I've heard this concept, but this notion of the lizard brain, the most base instincts of um, the human drive for survival, 
that's what he's trying to release. Um, and it's almost like the, uh, the, the goal of that is actually to, um, to strip away the human fixations that have been holding him back to ditch all of that idea of, of responsibility, which Peter is now embracing and seizing. He wants to get rid of it all so he can move forward and take what he considers to be an evolutionary leap forward but is actually kind of an evolutionary leap back you have to start human trials no no i don't and no i won't oh then he's going to die people die even norman osborne you are not finished human trials where on earth are you going to find the people to volunteer to what as far as anyone's concerned it's for a winter flu shot i might think the veterans hospital is a place to start you've got to be kidding me i don't think i am It's a little late for shock and indignation, Kurt, about 15 years late. I've no idea what you're talking about. Richard Parker wore it well when you said cheap suit, as it was then. I had nothing to do with that. Is that what you told his son, Peter? I don't know what you're saying. You don't know, or you don't want to know? I'll remind you what happened. Richard Parker said just about the same thing then that you are saying now. The clock is ticking, Dr. Connors. I am. I won't. Fine. The formula is ours now, anyway. Say goodbye to that arm you've dreamed of. I'm shutting you down. Have your office cleared out by the morning. Your toys could be taken away too, you know. Next time you're watching this movie, pay attention to that character of Dr. Rajit Ratha because he disappears halfway through the movie and nobody ever mentions him again. Again, this compounds the idea of a re-edited second half of the film. He actually gets killed in a deleted scene, but it's something to do with Peter Parker's shadowy past. But in the movie, as you see it, the lizard menaces him on the bridge and he disappears. The bridge scene, <clears throat> which is one of the messiest in the whole movie, I might add. And that's where the, the Connors has just turned into the lizard and it's about to enter into its second part and it's beginning to fall to pieces. The lizard chucks a bunch of cars to one side and uh, Spider-Man goes under the bridge to try to stop him. Doesn't get to stop him because the lizard runs away a little bit, goes and hides behind a car, and turns back into Connors again. Thus, a uh, potentially dazzling uh, bit of combat is averted. But somehow, Spider-Man has got a whole bunch of cars dangling off the bridge. Now, if those cars didn't have people in them, why did Peter web them? And he saves one kid, and then he leaves with a whole bunch of cars still hanging off the bridge. It's and in an hour, by the way, that webbing's going to degrade. No one's getting those cars back with a crane in less than an hour. Here's how it could happen. All it has to be is that when he says, I'm Spider-Man, he then goes off and starts getting other people out of the cars because he realises this is his job. Because that's what this scene is. It's not about dealing with the burglar and then feeling guilty about it. This is the scene where Peter Parker realises that 
his abilities and this new costume he's put together somehow. It's, it's incredibly beautifully made um, and, and very, very intricate. So they said in their remit, this is what a teenager would make. I don't know any teenager who's that good a seamstress. Even the best cosplayers in the world would go, ooh, look at that. This scene wasn't in the original Spider-Man. If you remember, the burglar dies, and he's not too fussed about it. Uncle Ben has his funeral. We then cut to montage of Peter flying around the city and swinging around the city, foiling jewellery heists and bank robberies and hanging up rapists. At no point is there a moment where you get to zoom in on Peter's mask as he realises that it's more than just being able to swing around the place and he can actually do this. This is his transformation scene where he realises he can be a protector and somebody who helps people. The moments when they come, when he gets validation from the people of New York, are uh, similar to the bridge scene at the end of the first Spider-Man when the people of New York help him against the Goblin, and then that wonderful scene in the train at the end of Spider-Man 2. So for Maguire's Spider-Man, it's kind of a thankless task doing what he does for many, many months. So because we've seen Spider-Man do his thing for three massive blockbuster films, most people on watching this for the first time kind of missed the significance of this moment. You have to kind of get back into the mindset of this really is the first time Spider-Man set out. You almost have to forget the previous films. So he talks to uh, C. Thomas Howell, the father of uh, the kid, and that sets up a link which is then carried out by the crane operators later in the movie. Spider-Man realises on the bridge, I can use this to help people, and then the people help him. So when he starts to swing... Symbolically speaking, helping people out has made him decide to look for a path, and now the people that he's helped are helping him to find that path. And as he swings, he gets better and better until the music just soars up and he is finally doing what he should be doing. Pretty heavy-handed symbolism, I know, but I like to see heroes supported by regular people. I think, for me, the most uh, significant thing about this scene, um, and, and the reason why I didn't really give any thought to what was happening with the people in the other cars, is that um, his interaction with Jack is hugely significant. What I said before about Peter having these little flashes of insight about how to deal with people, not consistently enough that he can rely on that as being a part of his character, but every so often he knows just the right thing to say. And I think in this particular moment, it's partly because he's because he's come from being a little boy who needed something to help him be brave, he knows what to do to help that little boy be brave but it's the same thing as uh, what I said about the creating a, the mask of an adolescent but then instead of just showing the mask turn it round and let you see through it that's what he's doing with his mask with Jack he gives him it and tells him to put it on and it will make him strong and this is something that reinforces this idea which is brought up again in, in the second film that what Spider-Man is is hope. It doesn't necessarily matter 
that he can't rescue everybody, that there are people that he can't save. The fact that he's there, the fact that he could, and the fact that that means that there are people who will emulate him is what's important. He is, in a way, he's so emblematic of New York that he almost becomes the city itself certainly an inherent part of it and I think there's a, a reason why when the issue of um, 9-11 was addressed within the comics Spider-Man was such an important part of that, not story but you know what I mean the, the, the looking at that scenario um, because if that had happened within the Marvel Universe that's who would have been there first. Not necessarily the person who would have been able to do the most, not necessarily the person who would have even been able to do much, considering how how much there was to do and how many people were required to do it. But he's the he's the spark, he's the hope. In fact, uh, when he's uh, going around and being a vigilante, uh, Peter's actually kind of scary. When he's just before he gets into his main Spider-Man costume, and just afterwards when he's uh, you know webbing that guy to the wall and then cocking his head, and you just see his face, and you're kind of seeing it from the point of view of the car thief, and he's genuinely scary. He's he's dicking around, and he's he's being the most effective, sarcastic mocking Spider-Man that we've seen on screen but at the same time there's a coldness to it, there's a fury behind it which he's holding in check but carrying on down this road and he's going to kill someone I agree on that, I think the um, in the immediate aftermath of Ben's death he behaves very much in the manner of somebody who is it's going through grief in a very angry way. He he lashes out at all the wrong people. He starts biting off more than he can chew. He becomes very self-destructive, but in a... And he starts impeding and antagonising the police, who yeah. are actually supposed to be doing the job that he's helping them with. Absolutely. And he becomes very um, defensive about his own behaviour as well. Um, he doesn't which... question himself. That's right. And, and you can, but again, as you say, you can look through all of this and see the, um, the terror and the anger of a, a little boy who is losing father figures one after the other. Um, and I mean, he loses four in this film. His own father, he yeah. loses Ben, he loses Connors, and he loses Captain Stacy. And for somebody who is trying to work out what kind of man he is going to be to see all of his role models, all the people who he is trying to model himself on disappear one after the other. What does that tell him about the man he wants to be that it keeps disappearing? 
that he can't hang on to it. There's a, a I, I didn't notice it until we watched it the time before last. I don't know if this is deliberate. This could entirely be down to my interpretation, but when Peter is on the subway train and he's just had the spider bite, um, and there's that whole scene where somebody puts a beer bottle on his head and he ends up breaking things and hitting people and, and really having no control over his new spider abilities at all. There is a poster on the subway car inside and it's obviously something to do with um, like testicular cancer to, or something. Not going to the doctor when you've clearly got something. Exactly, properly. yeah. And it says it says something like uh, however many men this year it, uh, will die from stubbornness. And if you look at the pattern of what happens to the male characters in this film, they not necessarily all die, but they all come to relatively sticky ends through acting out what they think a man should be. Ben goes to take the gun from the thief and gets killed. You could argue that that is, you know, his his stubbornness in that any number of other people would have gone, this is totally not my problem, and walked away. He doesn't, and therefore he dies. That if you could do good things for other people, you had a moral obligation to do those things. Connors won't let his ideal uh, for bringing this formula that he thinks will cure everybody to the world and it takes him down it doesn't kill him but it takes him down though he does save peter emulating the end of the spider-man 2 where dr octopus decides he will not die a monster and captain stacy has a job to do which come hell or high water he will do and it kills him and there is every chance that peter is going to end up going down the same route There's a very uh, specific moment in this when he's kneeling on the floor in his bedroom in the spider suit uh, with his mask off and he's on the floor. Uh, they've gone for the uh, ultimate Spider-Man look with him here, but this has also been in other comics, specifically the 90s Spider-Man was very much like this. Very spindly body, very big head, with that Peter Parker hair just going up and up, and almost a quiff. But when he's kneeling down like that with his Peter face out but the Spider-Man costume on, that is an absolutely classic shot. Because at that stage, he is being overwhelmed by the role and the symbolism of Spider-Man. If you look at uh, Garfield in this costume, I, I need to start calling him Andrew. It feels really weird calling him Garfield. Ladies um, and gentlemen, Garfield <laughs> and friends. <laughs> um, seeing him in the costume... Um, there's something about his physicality that just works for this. And he's, he's more arachnid-like than Maguire ever had any hope of being. I mean, one of the things I said about Tobey Maguire was that there was this fear that without the mask, you wouldn't be able to see his emotions. You couldn't see his emotions when he took the mask off. Um, but Andrew Garfield, it's all there through the mask or not it's in his body language in his vocal tone he's incredibly expressive regardless of what costume he's wearing or what situation he's in and also he's got this 
like Doug Jones expressive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he moves incredibly fast. He gives the impression that he thinks quicker than everybody else does, that he responds more sharply than anybody else does. I noticed he was cocking his head on one side in uh, Amazing 2, which is something that uh, uh, Maguire barely did. He's very uh, dynamic in the way that he twitches and loops and curls himself around the uh, action sequences in in Amazing 2 specifically. Mm. But I mean, it's it's very bird-like, but there's there's something very insect-like about it as well. Although, um, actually, we can't really credit Garfield with a lot of the action sequences in two. Let me just uh, amend that one slightly. A lot of that would have been CG Spidey. But the fact that they can get CG Spidey that expressive is in itself an achievement. But I think a lot of that comes from the fact that... The animators have something to work with. Exactly. The, the CG Spidey looks like the real one. It makes that performance central to how the beats of the character are coming across. And like I said, he does it better than anybody I've seen do it before. And I, I could quite easily see his Spider-Man not being topped for me. Yeah. There's some very significant reasons why Spider-Man may not be topped for me as well. We'll talk about that in two. Um, there's actually kind of a, the uh, the graduation from uh, the Raimi Spider-Man to this one is not dissimilar to how when Todd McFarlane started drawing him in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, much as I dislike Far- McFarlane and Spawn in general, there was a great deal of note attached at the time to how spider-ish he got Spider-Man before he sort of like, you know, he, he raises his leg, he flings his uh, hand down like that. The difference when McFarlane started drawing him, like, you know, curling his body up into like sort of Tibetan swami shapes and really getting the leg over the head and really like, you know, flexing that comes into play in uh, the amazing films and not really to begin with quite so much. There is a lot of set design and, lighting design which is very drab and very dark and it felt as a result like there were there were times throughout the film was like could someone turn the lights on go outside in the middle of the day peter somebody said very um logically well peter's at school all day he has to operate at night which is understandable but the weekend that was one of the things that was definitely changed for Amazing 2. They brought back the blue skies. They brought back the very red reds and the blue blues. And that's not to say that there's no colour in this film at all. There are times when he's walking around the neighbourhoods and you get a lot of greenery. But they've tried to keep it as muted as possible in their attempts to distance themselves from the Raimi films. And I think they went a bit too far with that. It becomes drab and a little bit too damp. If that's a... Uh, adjective that works in this case it it does make perfect sense but again i think if you look at it in terms of spider-man being presented as the city's hope it also makes sense that he is the city's color yeah and peter is also portrayed here as a scientific genius not something he was ever really portrayed as before he in fact turns down a job at oscorp so that he can be a photographer and he goes with jj and he goes down that route very 60s now it's much more this guy is very smart by necessity because he makes his own web shooters but yeah this peter is very very smart you're never in any doubt about that they make uh uh, references to it but specifically you get to see it uh, made apparent by the fact that andrew garfield is obviously a smart kid 
and all of that takes is a little bit of bending here and there, and suddenly what he's interested in and the way he writes equations down, and you've got yourself a Will Hunting. And I personally like my Peter um, something of a genius because it allows him to overthink things rather than being totally oblivious. And I don't think I've really made this clear, but I adore Andrew Garfield's performance in this. It's very intense and heartfelt, and when he's unloading on Uncle Ben, it's very hard for me not to tear up, simply because of how... uh, He's just barely holding in his frustrations at that point. He may appear to be exploding, but that's only 10% of how he actually feels. It becomes something that he can look back on as an, an immensely regrettable exchange, one that he can't undo. Now, he'd have had to work within his script, but there are things like um, when Ben comes in and says, you look just like your father, and uh, Peter goes, sort of nodding his head. Now, he's found this secret file in the uh, leather briefcase at this point, and he's trying to act like, oh, it ain't no thang. But you know that that meant something huge to him. There's something about that scene, actually, going on, and this is jumping around a little bit, but um, that, again, is a visual reference to... Peter's internal conflict. When he takes everything out of his father's briefcase, he lines it all up perfectly. Did you see the calculator and the uh, tokens? I did, Mm -hmm. yes. Before Ben comes in, he messes it all up. Because like you said, he's trying to give the impression that this is no big deal. Yeah. But there is so much about... Peter throughout this film, which is about him seeking order to counteract the chaos that's inside him. He has the chaos of be just being a teenager and then the chaos of the spider's additional DNA modified toxin is added to that. So you could say that his whole thing of trying to be this responsible person that he's trying to to live up to this ideal of helping people when you can that is a way of him trying to make order out of the chaos that's inside him that he has all of these physical impulses to run and jump and bounce and swing and climb which every child every teenager has physical energy that needs to be got rid of somehow and that's how he does it he looks for ways to um, to apply it usefully and that to me is what maturing and growing up is about lizard it's okay we stopped it oh. okay let's get you out of here look at me you need to stay with me helps on the way okay if you need to you need to be gone when they when they get here okay uh, I'm not going anywhere What's wrong about you, Peter? The city needs you. You're gonna need this. You're gonna make enemies. People will get hurt. Sometimes people closest to you. So I want you to promise me something, okay? Leave Gwen out of it. Promise me that. Huh? You promise me. 
Oh. Lizard's trying to turn everyone in town into a giant lizard because movie. But uh, the significant thing about this is uh, Dennis Leary's Captain Stacy gets involved with it and uh, dies and makes Peter promise to leave Gwen out of this. Now, any of the fans will know exactly what this is going to lead to. Um, so a lot of people would have sat up and taken notice at this stage. Uh, but it, there's a parallel there with the promise that Peter made to Norman Osborn uh, back in the first one. Only this one he decides to break and reaps the rewards. Leary's Captain Stacy was clearly cast uh, for his uh, role as a fireman in Rescue Me, but plays it even more serious and even more immovable, morally speaking. But to that end, he plays a stand-up guy and a father figure that Peter can genuinely mourn the loss of. So again, when he is unable to prevent him dying, that anguish that comes out of Andrew Garfield is again palpable. Not dissimilar, in fact, from uh, the end of Order of the Phoenix. Yes. Which was ironically the only Harry Potter film Steve Clovers didn't adapt. But there are many, many scenes with Peter and Gwen, just quiet, intimate scenes that we don't really have to go into in any particular detail. But there's a delicacy to them and a back and forth to them which speaks of equals which really doesn't happen all that often. There's a bit of one-upmanship and a bit of flirting going on when they're in public, but when they're in private, they confide in one another, and especially after he tells her his secret straight away rather than fucking around. Mm. And she takes that on board, reprocesses how she sees him, but as we find out later, she remains able to focus on him as Peter Parker and that she loves the fact that he does this thing as Spider-Man, but ultimately he's Peter to her. Did you get expelled? No, no, I didn't get expelled. I got community service. Um, so, uh, you want to, uh, I don't know. Um. Want to what? I don't know. Just, uh. Um. I don't know, we could, I don't know, we could, uh... At this point, I've been looking for really good clips of discussions between these two, and i got to say, 90% of it is visual. 90% of it is body language and chemistry and everything obvious about it. There's a lot of little, huh, what, and glances and things. That doesn't come across in audio. That means, as Bob Chipman said in his recent video about Gwen Stacy, they lucked out with the casting of this and managed to get together two kids with frightening natural chemistry. So, yeah, maybe the Twilight comparison is actually not all that unjustified, since 90% of the appeal of that was not necessarily what these characters were saying, but just that they were smouldering at each other and looking extremely hot while they were saying it. Or not saying it. The script was written by James Vanderbilt, who also wrote The Rundown and The Losers. But in all honesty, I'd take a 30-hour movie of Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone looking at each other and not saying all that much over this. It's as if you've reached the unreachable and you weren't ready for it. You said that? Oh, something like that. It feels genuine. Yeah. It feels genuine and precious and not something that is simply synthesized for the screen. Mm. It's the very difficult. The benefits of getting a drama director on. Absolutely. It's very difficult so does David Yates to, do, um, to create a relationship solely based on a script. Yeah. Because 
a relationship is not about what people say to each other. It's about what they don't say. It's about the looks and the the touches and the the way they get out of each other's way and the way they get in each other's way. All all the things that you cannot put in a script and have people portray it naturally. If it doesn't work, it's not going to work. You can't force it. And that's another major aspect of the Who Am I uh, storyline, which they uh, show their hand at the end by saying, this is what we've been doing all along. It's possible you could do the orphan storyline with Peter as an adult, but the point is when when you're already well into the journey of being a man and moving towards the possible stage of being a father yourself, something which Peter has dallied with in the past, the journey back to your childhood and the journey back to where you come from and the journey back to your parents becomes longer every year. And so the length of that necessitates starting again with a Peter who's very close to that. To that end, I can understand why they chose this story. Since they're going to reboot Spider-Man, let's focus on this. To summarize, I had been waiting for a live-action Peter Parker that I could genuinely like and relate to since I was four years old. I certainly didn't dislike Maguire at first and came out of the original Spider-Man very pleased with what I'd seen. I still am. It's a splendid movie, surpassed by its follow-up. The third is a series of forgettable and less forgettable mistakes that unfortunately highlighted the weaknesses of the first two. Seeing this, I was presented with a version of myself as a teenager, at once as sensitive and angry as I had been at my most raw, by turns intense and dickish. Garfield's Parker is an accurately depicted teenager making mistakes he will regret later and painting this dingy, shadowy origin as a series of murky memories and snatches of meaningful conversation. Look back on how you behaved at 16 years old, especially if you were undergoing immense emotional stresses. With that in mind, the whole thing is Peter Parker looking back. The unfortunate casualty of this is Spider-Man himself. In the same way as Batman comes off as a stumbling crusader, just about able to keep his head above water in the Dark Knight trilogy, Spider-Man here is a rank amateur out of his depth. As strongly as Peter is characterised, the wall crawler has already enjoyed so much flashy and expensive screen time over three previous movies that seeing him here banging into trucks and scrabbling around in the shadows, now far more affected by gravity and projectiles, it's a sloppy dimly lit 2am assault course for a hero in training his enemy is confusing visually unappealing and switches motivations on a whim in a way that they seem to hope you won't notice oh and by the way when he finds his camera and it's labelled property of Peter Parker that is the sloppiest way to get him to go A I hate Peter Parker and B I will track him to his school and murder him the origin half of the first film is mashed together with the Doc Ock half of the second in clumsy, haphazard fashion that left audiences unsure as to what they were watching or why they were watching it. Licensing issues were part and parcel for its very existence, which is never a good enough reason to make a move. It had to be made by 2012, within five years of the last Spider-Man outing, or the rights would have been reverted to Marvel. Thus, it exists for financial necessity. 
Your average man on the street doesn't understand rescinding licensing rights. It is neither their business nor of interest to them. All they want to see is Spider-Man swing about, maybe in 3D this time, for the novelty value, saying funny things, getting into scrapes, and fighting big, colourful villains. The more recognisable, the better. In many ways, this film deliberately denies the general public what they want, force-feeding them what feels like two halves of two meals that they've already eaten. But this time with gritty realism, the absence of colour and sunlight in order to get everyone on the same page. And the majority of proceedings hang on a mystery plot that's far less interesting than something this portentous needs to be to justify its portentousness. Richard Parker, Kirk Connors, we later find out Norman Osborn, and yeah, probably Otto Octavius, were all working on something. What was that thing? Creating super soldiers? You could infer this from the opening scenes of Panic and Scientific Espionage, and it's corroborated by everything that happens afterwards, but this is akin to making an X-Men film that keeps hinting at Sentinel production for two movies. The fans know already, the smart can work it out, the dumb don't understand, and the average don't care. You achieve nothing with this dance of the Sinister Seven veils, and less than nothing if the aforementioned smart ask what the long-term gain of this super-soldier plan is. There are other, more profitable uses of mechanised octopus arms, falcon wingsuits and giant mysterious head bowls. Ultimately, all five films have structural and logistical weaknesses, enforced villain showdowns and some fine performances. Some get more confused than others in the creation stage concerning what they're actually about and Amazing does fall victim to this. The assumption that we've seen the previous films and can import characterization and motivation across in some instances, but not others, was a risk, and it didn't pay off. And Peter comes off as sensitive and angry, rather than hapless and guilty, which would have left many people declaring, that's not my Spider-Man. To begin with, it's about a boy trying to find his place and trying to do the right thing, impeded by his own anger. By the end, Peter takes direct responsibility for the lizard, his creation, and in following his father's footsteps, decides he has a moral obligation to protect the city. It's certainly not groundbreaking, but it is presented in a cinematic language that frequently makes it feel real, modern, and relevant. Really, though, it's the casting of Garfield and Stone, as well as Ifans, Field, and Sheen, that rescue this for me, personally. Their delivery and serious physical embodiment of the characters makes me want to return to this universe. Stone, in particular, is so luminous in this role that from this point onwards she's the beacon to which all other comic book female protagonists will be measured for me. Absolutely real, absolutely serious, absolutely funny, absolutely lovable, and smarter than a busload of Dr. Jean Greys. Her on-screen pairing with Garfield over these two movies brings them on an emotional level closer to before sunrise and before sunset than the first two Raimi Spider-Mans. Laying down the thrill of discovery and connection with the inevitable decisions and regret and very true responses that spring from these. It took actors of this caliber and a director attuned to indie relationship drama rather than low budget horror to really deliver me the Peter Parker and the Gwen Stacy. Even if the rest of the film is not in fact amazing and even if Spider-Man is almost a footnote. 
Thank you all very much for listening to us go through and through The Amazing Spider-Man. We will be back in a few days' time to talk The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Till that time, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural Neural Handshake handshake complete. Complete. It's a great little quote. It's a great little snippet and a vignette. And it's very important that it runs throughout the, uh, uh, the the Raimi films. But we're now in what they're trying to purport as a different world. So to go back to this and to export from this fantasy world uh, this little snippet and vignette, it's like my wings are like a shield of steel. It it doesn't fit anymore. Is that bat thing? That is bad thing. But the... <laughs> Still my heart Hold my tongue I feel my time My time has come Let me in Unlock the door I never felt this way before And the wheels just keep on turning The drummer begins to drum I don't know which way I'm going I don't know which way I've come Hold my hand Inside your hands 
I need someone who understands. I need someone, someone who hears. For you, I've waited all these years. For you, I'd wait till kingdom come. Till my day, my day is done. And say you'll come and set me free. Just say you'll wait, you'll wait for me. Tears and in your blood, in your fire and in your flood, I hear you laugh. I heard you sing. I wouldn't change a single thing. The wheels just keep on turning. The drummers begin to drum. I don't know which way I'm going. I don't know what I'll become. For you, I'd wait till kingdom come. Until my days. Say your way.